I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, September 20th, 2016. Coming up, we'll hear from a scientist who has documented a historic event, the reversal of early Alzheimer's disease. This is the first time in history that there's been reversal of cognitive decline in early Alzheimer's disease. And we'll hear from a group of citizens who have a genetically high risk of developing Alzheimer's and are not giving up. I can hopefully prevent it, but if, if not, at least put it off for decades. We begin with a look at upcoming events in science. This weekend, the Washed Ashore Art to Save the Sea Traveling Art Exhibit will be at the Denver Zoo. Denver may seem far removed from the ocean, but as the Boulder-based National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration notes, 80% of ocean pollution originates from activities on land and flows downriver to oceans. Events connected to the Washed Ashore Exhibit start this Friday, September 23rd at 6.30, with an adults-only food truck safari and meet up with the artists of the large-scale sculptures made entirely from ocean trash. Saturday will be a family-friendly Washed Ashore beach party starting at 6.30. Learn more at washedashore.org. Also Saturday, you can join Boulder Community's Creek Cleanup, hosted by the Rocky Mountain Anglers. The cleanup starts Saturday morning at 9.30 in Boulder's Eben Fine Park and continues east on Boulder Creek all the way to 55th Street. The cleanup ends at noon with a barbecue and live music. Additionally, Saturday starts the school season's monthly CU Wizards lecture. This Saturday, Professor Lou Harvey will present Illusion and Reality, the Science of Perception. Saturday morning's CU Wizards talk begins at 9.30 in CU Boulder's Duane Physics Building. Find out more by Googling CU Wizards. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. The Alzheimer's Association calls Alzheimer's the only disease among the top 10 causes of death in America that cannot be prevented, cured, or even slowed. This gloomy outlook means many people avoid screening tests for dementia. Now, Dale Bredesen, a leading scientist from California's Buck Institute for Research on Aging, has documented reversal of early Alzheimer's in a small case study, largely through lifestyle interventions. Some activists with a high genetic risk for Alzheimer's say the study bolsters their efforts to speak openly about ways to foster healthy brains. They were in Boulder along with Dr. Bredesen last month for the Ancestral Health Symposium at CU Boulder. Here's more. The two dozen friends gathered for a late summer picnic in Boulder are here for salad, yoga stretches, and support. They've teamed up to reduce their risk for a brain-destroying disease known as Alzheimer's. We all found out that we carried one or two copies of the APOE4 gene, which is, puts us at higher risk for Alzheimer's. Susan, who offers only her first name, says her father died from Alzheimer's. During his decline, Doctors had little to offer except a memory-boosting drug called Aricept. In terms of Alzheimer's, it was just more or less, well, we could try Aricept, but it won't work for very long. 
And there's, there's a fatalistic attitude with some doctors that once you have it, there's nothing you can do. And you just sort of have to get your affairs in order and expect that you're going to the nursing home next. Susan discovered she has the APOE4 genetic trait four years ago. Determined not to do nothing, she went online and sought other people with her genotype. A bunch of us banded together and decided to see, can we hack our own health? One of those hackers is Julie G. Before teaming up with Susan, Julie G. had been anxiously monitoring her increasing senior moments at the not-so-senior age of 49. Then she learned that she has the APOE4 genetic trait. What was very frightening at the time was that I was beginning to exhibit symptoms of cognitive decline. And I wasn't all that concerned about that until I learned about my APOE4 homozygote status. Um, I thought it was just stress, the onset of menopause, a hectic life. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't particularly concerned. But when I put the symptoms I was having together with my very high risk of developing Alzheimer's disease, I was pretty terrified. Her fear turned to courage as she helped build an online community named APOE4.info. The health hackers dug into the conflicting studies about healthy brains, then focused in on leafy greens, healthy fats, exercise, and more. It's been a very exciting journey. My cognition is very much improved now. Her group's approach is validated by the work of Dale Bredesen of the Buck Institute for Research on Aging. He studies how combining lifestyle changes with other interventions can reverse cognitive decline and has conferred with the APOE4.info group for two years. In June, Bredesen added to their optimism when he documented memory improvements for even early Alzheimer's. This is the first time in history that there's been reversal of cognitive decline in early Alzheimer's disease. And we now have also the first objective improvements, uh, volumetric changes on MRI, uh, cognitive changes with neuropsychological quantitative testing. This is the first time that that's been done. Bredesen says most attempts to prevent dementia fail because they focus on a magic bullet, such as a single drug. And that's even though too often, cognitive decline is caused by several problems that interfere with a healthy brain. Bredesen joined the APOE4.info group for its August meeting in Boulder. He calls them people who walk the talk by using a variety of synergistic ways to help the brain. While he recommends personalizing those ways to each person, his interventions often include rigorous exercise, a low-carb, ketogenic diet, tests that uncover hidden chronic infections, supplements to deal with nutrition imbalances, and more. When you actually look at the molecular mechanistics driving the underlying problem, the cognitive decline that ultimately leads to Alzheimer's, guess what? You see a component that is stress-related. You see a component that's sleep-related. All this gives members of the APOE4.info group more confidence that a genetic risk does not have to be a destiny. I can hopefully prevent it, but if, if not, at least put it off for decades. Bredesen adds that the earlier people find out that they might be at risk for dementia, the easier it is to turn things around. What's happened up until now is that people will say, don't bother to find out your APOE status, because if you find out that you're APOE4 positive, especially if you're a homozygote, then there will be nothing to do about it. And again, we disagree with that. There's a lot that can be done with it today. And so therefore, we recommend that people come out and find out what their status is and then get their entire, what we call a cognoscopy, the entire, just as you get a colonoscopy when you're 50, you should get a cognoscopy when you're 45, and find out your entire metabolic profile, find out your genetics, and then if you need to get on a program for prevention, then do so at that time. Bredesen plans clinical studies to refine his approach for reversing cognitive decline.
The Alzheimer's Association calls his work a promising possibility that may help the United States develop national policies to prevent or effectively treat Alzheimer's disease by the year 2025. You're tuned to the KGNU Science Show, How on Earth. I'm Shelley Schlender. Up next, here's a conversation with Dale Bredesen, leader of the Buck Institute for Research on Aging. Bredesen has documented reversal of early Alzheimer's in a small case study, largely through lifestyle interventions. We spoke while he was at CU Boulder for the 2016 Ancestral Health Symposium. This is really part of a much bigger story uh, which is uh, the change of medicine from something that asks what do you have and treats it with drugs to something that asks why are you ill and what are all the things that contribute to it and looks at much larger data sets and then is able to get at the root cause uh, of, of the underlying problem. And we've got currently, you know, most Americans are dying of chronic illnesses uh, and so the approach to chronic illnesses with single drugs has been relatively ineffective. And even a very simple example, HIV, where it took three drugs to have uh, a significant effect. To some extent, this is uh, an extension of that, where you're looking at complex illnesses like Alzheimer's disease and cognitive decline due to other causes, where you're ending up finding many different contributors and you need to understand the genetics and you need to understand the metabolomics and you need to understand lifestyle changes and many many different contributors and so we've identified dozens and dozens of contributors uh, to cognitive change which chronically can become Alzheimer's disease and so the implications are far-reaching because number one if you look early on you can understand what the risk is and you can have an, a dramatic impact on the likelihood of developing the illness. And secondly, we also see early reversal, which we've published a number of times already, where you can see people who are in the early stages and reverse these people and get them really back to normal often. How far along can someone be with Alzheimer's in the tests you've seen or dementia and still have a chance of reversal? So how far along people can be to have a reversal of their cognitive decline is a, is a big issue, and it's one that we're interested in because the question is, if you go as far as you can, what can you do to take it one more day and then one more week and that sort of thing? So when you get Alzheimer's disease, of course you start out with an at-risk period where you can have uh, a alterations in your cerebrospinal fluid, alterations on your PET scans, for example, but you don't yet have symptoms. And then you enter a period, the second period, which is called SCI, or subjective cognitive impairment, where you can have changes where you know there's something wrong and your spouse knows there's something wrong and your coworkers may know there's something wrong. But at that point, by definition, you're still testing within normal limits. Now, some of that is is just uh, the, an artifact of our testing systems, which, uh, which aren't always sensitive enough to pick up changes, especially in people who've been very, very high functioning throughout their lives. Um, so after SCI, which may last a decade, then you have MCI, which is mild cognitive impairment. And by definition, at that point, 
uh, you know there's something wrong, but also the testing is now showing there's something wrong. So during all those phases, um, we've had very, very good results. You now enter, uh, after MCI, early Alzheimer's disease, and again, we've had some good results with some people who are in that stage. Then from there, mid-stage and late stage, and we've not had such good results with people who are that far along, with people who are, uh, who are uh, significantly impaired with Alzheimer's disease. I think of my uh, mother-in-law was uh, in a memory care, memory care unit. Right. So I think about somebody who doesn't recognize their spouse, has to be kept in a locked-in place because if they walk outside, they may wander away and not know where they are. Is that late stage or middle stage or where? Yeah, that's late stage. So the reality is with understanding what's actually causing the problem, nobody should get to that stage. This is, this is like saying if you're trying to try to uh, do something about cancer, you don't want to wait till it's widely metastatic. You want to start early on. And the same goes for cognitive changes. So you want to get in early. You know, Pre-symptomatic, SCI, MCI, at the latest early Alzheimer's disease. When someone is not recognizing under other individuals and is in a nursing home, those are late stages. But if somebody still remembers who their friends are and they still remember the people around them, even if they can't add numbers the way that they used to, even if they can't remember dates and times, that's still not late stage yet. That's middle stage? But that's middle of Alzheimer's disease. So that's still relatively late for the program that we developed, which is really for early Alzheimer's and SCI and MCI and prevention. Uh, so, and as far as the calculation part, you know, that is a typically a cortical abnormality that is in a subgroup of people. So we identify different subtypes of Alzheimer's disease, which helps us to understand what's causing each component, what's causing each uh, person's cognitive change. So some people, they might know where they are, but they not, might not know what day of the week it is, and that gives you clues about what needs some support. Right, so if you look at the genetics combined with the biochemistry, combined with the symptoms, then you can get an idea of what is actually causing the problem, what subtype the person actually has, and what, is the, what are the areas that are most affected. What kind of test do you recommend that people get and how much would they cost? So the tests that we recommend um, include uh, genetics and especially we want to know the APOE status of the individual because that's the most important genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. Um, and then it includes a series of biochemistry tests, so things like uh, we'd like to know your copper to zinc ratio, we'd like to know your HSCRP, we'd like to know your vitamin D, we'd like to know your estradiol and testosterone level, and, and dozens of other things. All of these are tests that are consumer-grade tests, meaning that I or somebody else could buy them from a lab, a doctor could order these tests. That's correct. You could get these tests. And then, of course, if you are symptomatic, we also recommend that you get MRI imaging. Uh, with uh, quantitation, so with volumetrics, so you'll have an idea about where you stand, whether you have, for example, hippocampal atrophy or not. And then also you want to have a baseline cognitive assessment, and the good news is you can do that online for just a couple of dollars. Uh, the biochemistry tests are the one uh, relatively expensive item, but you can get these for a couple hundred dollars. So it's not tens of thousands of dollars, it might be a thousand dollars to get these tests. 
Yes, the idea is you should be able to get all of this done for under $1,000. It's still a significant amount of money, of course, but once you have cognitive changes, uh, this is going to have a huge impact on your life. And of course, if you end up in a nursing home, that's going to cost far, far more than that. So the idea is you can spend a lot less and head that off. Dale Bradison, how many people do you think you've helped with this protocol? We've now had close to 150 come through. We don't have data on all of them, um, but more than we have certainly know that more than half of them have shown clear and objective and quantitative improvement. Okay, so half, so roughly 75 people with documented change. More than half, yes. And yet the response to your recent case study from neurologists and other professionals I've talked with is this is anecdotal still. This is just case studies. What makes this special? What makes this special is that this is the first time in history that there's been reversal of cognitive decline in early Alzheimer's disease. And we now have also the first objective improvements, uh, volumetric changes on MRI, uh, cognitive changes with neuropsychological quantitative testing. This is the first time that that's been done. You're absolutely right. It is still at the anecdotal stage. And interestingly, you know, that's kind of ironic because this all started back in 2011 where we actually applied to do the first comprehensive trial and the IRBs turned us down. This was actually a trial to be done in Australia and we were turned down by the IRBs as being too complicated. So, you know, this is the same old thing where you have to have data to do a study, you have to have a study to get the data. So this is why you need enough anecdotal evidence. And we're now actually moving to a couple of trials. So we'll have much more evidence uh, within a year or two. But you have to start somewhere. I learned about your kind of perspective 15 years ago or more from some scientists who like to fish in the Colorado Rocky Mountains. What they fish for is salmon. Does that give you enough clues about why that was important? Uh, maybe you're talking about omega-3s and salmon? I don't know, but well, I, I don't, actually I don't know what you're referring to at the moment. Salmon is the only documented animal to, in its life cycle, always get Alzheimer's. Sure. They were one of the first groups to study this extensively, looking at brain scans of salmon or samples of tissue to look and see what the progression was of how the placking happened in a salmon's brain, whether they were swimming all across the Pacific to get up to their sterile little streams high up in the mountains, or just swimming a few miles in the Rocky Mountains. So it wasn't wear and tear. It's a programmed cell death among salmon, where the salmons are eating up their bodies in their final way up to the stream where they'll spawn. And as part of that, their brains are turning into soup. And the beta amyloid plaques in the soupy brains of the salmon are kind of like a Band-Aid that is holding off the parts of the brain they still need for their final acts of courtship and laying their eggs so that those areas are preserved. That was their thought about this, was that when a brain goes awry, it may not just be because of some sticky, tarry things. There may be a reason. So we've, as you know, studied programmed cell death for many, many years in the laboratory, and that was the idea initially. You know, could we understand the fundamental nature of Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative conditions so that we could actually develop the first effective therapeutics for these? You could argue that neurodegeneration has been the area of greatest biomedical failure. You know, we have some drugs to treat cancer and HIV. We really haven't done very well with things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. 
Well, Dale Bredesen, we have done well with Alzheimer's if it's Alzheimer's in a mouse. That's right. So Alzheimer's, we can do fairly well. But with human Alzheimer's and certainly human neurodegenerative diseases, it's been a, it's been a real slog. And so we wanted to understand the fundamental nature of this. And what we found is actually very, very different than what is the standard idea about Alzheimer's, which is that the amyloid and the tau are the bad actors. What we found is almost the opposite of that, that organisms make amyloid as a protective response, much as what you, like what you were saying about the salmon. You're actually making this as a protective response to three fundamentally different metabolic and toxic perturbations. So what we call type one is when you're actually making the amyloid in response to inflammation or infection. And as has been shown, Rudy Tanzi and Dr. Moir and his group out of Harvard showed that you actually make an antimicrobial A-beta. So it, ha it functions as an antimicrobial and it is a protective response to infection or inflammation. And that flies in the face of what's been claimed that this is the bad actor in the illness. The second thing is that type two you get from a decrease, especially a rapid decrease, in trophic support. What is trophic? Right, so trophic support is the support that is keeping your neurons alive, keeping them healthy, keeping them active. And there are many, many, many different contributors to that trophic support. And these include nerve growth factor, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, testosterone, vitamin D, estradiol, and the list goes on and on. There are dozens and dozens of factors. If you suddenly drop these, the response of the system is to create amyloid, which is involved in a programmatic downsizing, just as you said with the salmon. It's forming in response to a depletion, and it act contributes and this is why people have gotten confused and said it's the bad actor. Well, yes and no. It's a protective response, but it has a downsizing effect. So it does have an effect to pull back on the synapses. It does have an effect to activate neurite retraction. It does have an effect to activate, activate caspases, for example, and ultimately program cell death. But that's part of an overall protective response. Again, from inflammation, from uh, downsizing, from the trophic withdrawal. So when things are not supportive for the many, many synapses you have, which is about one quadrillion synapses, the first thing that goes, no different than a company, which the first thing will go in a company when it downsizes is the hiring of new employees. And then if things continue to go badly, of course, then you start downsizing the company. But the first thing that goes is the hiring of new employees. And that's the same thing that happens in the brain for most of these people. The first thing that goes is the remembering of new information. We need to have a balance between memory and forgetting. And the problem, of course, in Alzheimer's disease is that you're on the wrong side of that balance. So you're very, very good with forgetting and very, very poor with remembering things. Metabolically, there's a problem with this, too. Uh, we need one of the things that one, that one needs to do is to change the person over from a simple carb-based diet to a lipid-based diet. Lipids, what are those? Fats. So you want a good fats-based diet, um, monounsaturated fatty acids, polyunsaturated fatty acids, things like olive oils, things like nuts, things like avocados, but also some medium-chain triglycerides, things like that, These are, which are actually saturated fats. That's coconut oil. Coconut oil, which is a 12-carbon, and then caprylic acid, which is uh, what's also re uh, referred to as a medium-chain triglyceride, and that's a typically an 8-carbon, uh, a little different than coconut oil, but same general idea. 
why not just take that pill called Aricet that takes the stimulators, the neurotransmitters that stimulate memory formation and keep them around so that it kind of forces the nerves to make more memories no matter what. So we liken this to having a roof. Imagine that you have a roof with 36 holes in it. And we say 36 because when we initially looked at, at the mechanisms, we identified 36. Now we know that it's more like 50. Um, it's going to end up somewhere, you know, probably below 100. It's not going to be 1,000, it looks like, but it'll be dozens. So now what you have is a roof with 36 holes. If you take a drug, it plugs one hole. It plugs one hole beautifully, very well, but it's only one hole. Now, maybe you're going to be able to take several drugs together. That's a possibility. Maybe it's going to take a combination of a program and drugs. There are lots of possibilities here, but the idea is just attacking this with a monotherapeutic has not been successful so far, and this tells you why. Now, right now, if someone goes and has tests done to see what their cognition is, and they don't respond as well as they hoped to a drug like Aricept, then basically from that point on, any test that they take is basically just ticking down to see how much more they've declined and how much more they've declined. Because a neurologist, another therapist is trained to say there's nothing that we can do to turn this around. This is a progressive disease and it won't, you won't get better. That's been the standard claim, that there's nothing that can be done to prevent, reverse, or treat cognitive decline associated with Alzheimer's disease. That's right. What do you want to say about that? What's your opinion about that? I wholeheartedly disagree. Uh, as I said earlier, yes, late in the course, we haven't been able to do that. Uh, but um, we've seen, again, you know, dozens and dozens of people now where you do see improvements in cognition and people who have very well-documented SCI, MCI, and early Alzheimer's disease. Why does this matter to you? Well, uh, I see this as one of the major global problems. So the goal that we have is to reduce the global burden of dementia and to increase the global cognitive ability. Uh, imagine that you have people driving around who are at less risk for getting into an accident, people flying planes who are at less risk of having a crash, uh, people who are functioning every day as teachers, as attorneys, as physicians, who all have a greater a cerebral capacity. That's the way things are headed. And this includes things, of course, like, like the brain training and, and uh, things where you're improving neuroplasticity. Um, what we're doing with biochemistry actually complements that and synergizes with that approach. So the idea is that this is something that can be very helpful for people all over the world, not simply for preventing and reversing early Alzheimer's disease, but also for improving cognition in all of us. I'm Shelley Schlender. That was Dale Bredesen with the Buck Institute for Research on Aging. Bredesen has documented reversal of early Alzheimer's in a small case study, largely through lifestyle changes. He plans more clinical studies in the near future to discover more about who can benefit from these kinds of interventions, how, and why. We'll post this interview and an extended version on our Science Show website. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. Today's show was produced by me, 
Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Moon. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender. Thank you.